This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to the weekly roundtable edition of The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. On the show this week, should we go for Plan B or risk Plan C? As far as Rishi Sunak's concerned, lockdown four is out of the question, but is he right? Where is Facebook going? And are we going to get any better at anticipating the harms social media will do? And finally, we're getting a glimpse of the festival of Brexit. Will it be as transformative for culture as it's been for the economy? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to political journalist and author Marie LeConte. Hello. This week sees Chancellor Rishi Sunak set out his autumn budget. Have you been impressed by the many appetisers that his team have come out with so far? Well, I mean, not really, to be honest, because I think that you know, that, that's kind of like a known trick of the trade uh, for the Treasury to just announce all of the good news ahead of the budget. Um, and then, you know, basically all of the character that we'll get, we're going to get, I think, all of the stick on Wednesday. But the one thing I found quite interesting, actually, so you, you've kind of called them appetizers. I think they've kind of given the whole meal. So we've seen actually Lindsay Hoyle being quite grumpy at the Treasury, at Rishi Sunak, for effectively just giving out the entire budget to the newspapers before doing so in the House of Commons. So, I yeah, I, I think that's definitely been a kind of interesting approach. Also returning to the bunker, we're delighted to welcome back comedian and broadcaster Ahia Shah. Hello. Hello. Without wishing in any way to curry favour with you, I've bought tickets to your new show, which opens very soon. Um, How are the dress rehearsals going? It it does indeed. And I think that we did that in such a way that was so elegant that no one would possibly be able to know that I requested a plug at the beginning of this. Uh, Yes, you are correct that it opens on the 1st of November at the Soho Theatre. And I'm just doing the last little bits of work in progress things. And it turns out I remain funny and good. Everyone, uh, but but everyone buy things. Guys, this is true. I bought the tickets last week and I just said to her here, would you like me to mention that? And he said, yeah, he would, surprisingly enough. <laughs> so this is an entirely genuine exchange. Anyway, <laughs> our special guest this week is Guardian columnist and author Zoe Williams. Hello, Zoe. Welcome to The Bunker. Hi, thank you for calling me special. I love it. Laura Kunzberg is in talks to step down from her job as the BBC's chief political editor after six years in the job. She's probably been at the receiving end of more vitriol than any previous incumbent of this job. How do you rate her? Oh, it's it's a real weird fault line, this, in political journalism, whether or not you think it's acceptable to criticise Laura Kunzberg. Um, I think often her judgment is a little bit off. You know, she doesn't really... She's not very searching. She accepts at face value statements which shouldn't be accepted at face value. And she kind of puts out in this sort of informal Twitter context 
information that is sort of doing the government's donkey work for it. So I think it's completely acceptable to 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 kind of to say maybe she could be a little bit more critical. But um, I can also see that if you're going to get a huge amount of like abuse, then that does leave you, um, you know, that's really unpleasant. <laughs> I don't think I don't think that should have happened. Who would you like to see replace her? There are a few runners and riders in the uh, in the mix. I mean, I, I really like that. I, I, maybe I spend too long on Twitter, but did you see the odds of who was going to get, who, who might get her job next? And they had Owen Jones at 80 to 1. And <laughs> I mean, the idea that you would give Ash that job is so hilarious to me. Um, but um, I mean, I, I imagine it's going to have exactly the same sort of slightly turbulent, splenetic process around it as the um, appointment of Jess Braymar had. What, had. You know, they're going to get a perfectly solid journalist and then everybody's going to say, no, they're way too left wing. And then and then there's going to be a kind of embarrassed shuffling process. And this person who is apparently too left wing, even though they're probably not left particularly left wing at all, will eventually get the job. And I just think, you know, we, we, we've kind of certainly from the from the left's perspective, we've been we've allowed ourselves to be really backed into a corner where I think it's absolutely, you know, it's obviously an absolutely fanciful that anybody genuinely left wing could ever have a job in mainstream public broadcasting anymore, even though that used to be quite normal. And so you're kind of look and so you're kind of braced to just defend people who aren't especially political one way or the other. If I were in that go that job, which clearly I'm not. I would just get off Twitter immediately. It just wouldn't be worth it, would it? It would be too late, Roz. Too late for you. I know. They would be able to, like, trawl you and say, and uh, trawl your entire output and say, I believe this person to have opposed Brexit, and therefore (laughs) she's clearly crazy. (laughs) Now, Boris Johnson popped up today to warn kids that plastic recycling wasn't really worth it and suggest we redress things in the animal kingdom by perhaps feeding humans to animals. But Rishi Sunak has been all over the papers as we were talking about ahead of his budget. Just this weekend, he's promised to digitise the NHS, raise the national living wage, force NHS staff to get their jabs. He's ploughed £7 billion into the transport network. He's forked out £500 million for families. He's going to have skills boot camps, which sounds terrible. And he's given the NHS almost six billion to tackle the operations backlog. And he's also told the Times there would be no more lockdowns. But although the government has reportedly been consulting local authorities about implementing Plan B, there is no sign that the government plans to do so. In fact, they're talking up models saying the number of cases will dwindle in November as kids acquire herd immunity. Marie. The polls are very odd on this point. Perhaps you can help me understand them. About 60% of people would back a working from home edict and 76% would back compulsory masks. But there's no way that three quarters of us are currently wearing masks. What explains this? Um, so there's, I remember actually a Twitter thread from a journalist, Sandy, I can't remember who it was, but who was really interesting on the topic. And his theory was that it was not unlike... Um, tax paying in quite corrupt countries where actually it's one of those where you know people will end up trying to go for like tax evasion tax avoidance etc in countries where they feel that basically like no one you know no one in position of power is paying their fair share etc so resentfully basically do the same even though they wish they could live in a country where everyone paid their taxes um and and i wonder if that's not actually kind of a a similar way of thinking so actually 
I mean, I don't know. I, I personally hate working from home, but, you know, apparently some people enjoy it. But for example, I think no one enjoys wearing masks indoors. So I can sort of see how you'd be like, actually, I'm not sure I want to do I want, I want to do this kind of like quite unpleasant thing if no one else is doing it anyway. So I, I don't know. I Yeah, I, I would say I'm probably actually slightly one of those people where we should probably start wearing masks in shops again, I suppose. But I'm definitely not doing it at the moment because I really, really hate wearing masks and actually quite selfishly. I'm like, well, I'm not going to be the only one doing it. Do most Britons just like clear, unambiguous instructions? I mean, is, is that what we want? We want to be told to do it clearly. I think yes. But more importantly, I think we want to know that everyone else is doing the thing that's a bit annoying and inconvenient. So so I think there's a limit to which people want to be alone, you know, standing alone doing the right thing. I think there's a bit of actually, ugh, if I'm going to be doing this, I want everyone else to be doing it as well. <laughs> For the moment, France has done much better in controlling cases than us. How have they achieved that? Um, so I'm not entirely sure, but instead I can talk to you about Italy if you want, because I have just come back from Italy, which has much lower cases than us as well. Um, Were you in Venice, Marie? Yes, I was in Venice and it was <laughs> the best. It was the best. I literally have spent my entire day not really working, but thinking, could I make it work financially to just piss off to Venice for six months? Um, so, yeah, that that is how I'm doing right now. Um, but uh, <laughs> Stop um, it. Stop it, guys. I mean, this is just... <laughs> torture go on <laughs> um you know, and, that, and to be fair you know you did absolutely need so that they have vaccine passports there and you could not eat anywhere indoors uh, without showing it you know from the smallest restaurants to everything um and also yeah masks absolutely everywhere as well so my guess you know when i was in france actually in august it was kind of the same so both vaccine passports um and mask wearing everywhere indoors so i would suspect you know a lot of it is basically just that who could have guessed who could have thought the thing is, I can't believe that's right. I mean, sorry, sorry. That's I came in much too trenchant. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing, the only thing which gives me slight pause over that explanation is that if you look at double vaccination rates in the UK, they're really, really high. Um, so even if you had vaccination vaccination passports, you'd still largely be dealing with a population that had been vaccinated which just was and you're just kind of strengthening the um the kind of mechanism for them proving it next i i wonder and this is to be clear complete sort of like armchair psychology i have no idea if what i'm <laughs> saying has an ounce of truth in it but i do wonder if there's a slight psychological thing as well of doing that it was kind of weird actually going to italy and you know between the mask and the vaccine passports and stuff just kind of being reminded that there was a pandemic like, because I feel like in London, you know, fundamentally humans are quite stupid in our day to day lives. And I, I think quite a big part of me had more or less forgotten about COVID um, living in England. And then going there was that, oh, God, yes, yes, I, I suppose there is a pandemic still. Um, so, so, yeah, so I wonder if there's not a slight thing where you do end up kind of adjusting your behaviour and et cetera. So I know, you know, so I do have friends who live in Venice. That's why I was there to go visit them. And they just wanted to sit outside the entire time. And, you know, and that was quite odd because I was like, actually, I've not had that conversation with friends in Britain since, you know, probably about June or July, really, that everyone's just been sitting in. Like, at least all my friends have been happily sitting indoors uh, that entire time. I wonder if we just don't want to enforce it because I, I, well, I was in France, like you, in August, Marie, and uh, I was travelling on a TGV 
And um, there was a bloke behind me who wasn't wearing his mask properly. And he was literally the only person on the train who was not wearing his mask properly. And the SNCF guy came along and said, you know, put this on properly. And he didn't. And he came back and said again, put this on properly. And the guy punched him and there was a massive oh fight. <laughs> <laughs> it was it oh, was a bit scary, funny. frankly. I mean, it, it, it was not something I really want to witness again. But, you know, that that is unfortunately sometimes the kind of thing that happens when you have strict rules, if you're going to enforce them. And I think we just don't want to. The thing is, I'm like, a, maybe I hope that I'm representative and not just a completely wild, irresponsible person. But if everybody else is wearing a mask, I would definitely do it just to just in order not to embarrass myself. I think the pressure of kind of social norms is the greatest of all things, much greater than somebody punching you in the face, which is just a lot more effort. Um, um, yeah, I, I'm kind of with Marie. I'm not that fussed about them if I'm going to be the only one. I'm certainly not a kind of, I'm certainly not cautious in that way. So I wonder whether it's not so much that we've forgotten about the virus as we've got we've we, this this kind of narrative has taken hold partly because of the vaccine story at the start we've got this amazing vaccine we developed it you know we got it first we bought tons of it it's a kind of you know Boris Johnson's success story what he's done with that is kind of seeded this idea that if that this is as good as it's ever going to get you know that there is no eradicating the disease. All you can do is vaccinate and we vaccinated. Um, and so, and I think that kind of, because there, there wasn't that narrative in other European nations, nobody was like marching around going, look how amazing we are at, at buying vaccines. <laughs> um, that it's sort of, it has tilted the, um, the affect a bit. You know, the British people are thinking, well, we have to learn to live with it. The best way to learn to live with it is is to to not worry. I hear Keir Starmer has now called for Plan B to be implemented after a bit of characteristic ambiguity over the weekend. <laughs> yeah. Is that the right call? Well, I mean, this is uh, this is news to me. I thought that he was still on. Uh, let's make Plan A work. So it's uh, it's fascinating to see that there's been some level of commitment on something. Perhaps it like suddenly. I, I don't find the mask thing like on public transport to be particularly onerous and the working from home thing, I guess, doesn't doesn't affect me uh, so much. So I'm not the best one to speak on that. But I think that what I what I would kind of appreciate is the stuff that's already in place, uh, sort of have, having even the most cursory form of enforcement, like I, as far as I'm aware, it still like is a rule on TFL that if you're on a tube or a bus, then you need to be doing this i always I, I just feel like a bit of a chump because i feel like uh, every day I'm, I'm the only one there with my little thing on and my glasses fogging up and no one else is doing this and i think that it's exactly what uh marie and zoe were talking about earlier of just like the the level of social pressure uh that gets exerted on you and like if, if, if there's no enforcement or anything of that stuff that even exists at the moment i suppose it's only natural that people end up thinking well this is over then um, is, is part of the public's attitude just a desperate wish that COVID would go away? I mean, this has been such a painful period, and I've heard the theory that we just can't bear to be reminded of it. We have to move away now. Of course, of course. Like I, I wish it would go away. I think that that's an entirely uh, normal human way of being. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the effect is called, but there's some sort of effect, one of you may know, of like when something like this happens, you remember the best bit of it, the worst bit of it, and the average uh right so now is that true though <laughs> i don't know there, there's something in that like i feel as though i still have uh 
real sense of being able to remember some of the like bits in like the depths of winter 2020 or spring uh, sorry uh, spring 2020 or winter 2021 where i was like properly frightened every day and then uh, but then other than that i sort of just remember everything being a bit boring for ages and that isn't how it was at all of course like there there was uh sort of ridiculous low well largely lows happening constantly uh but i think yeah you just get you just get a bit overwhelmed at the end of it don't you uh that's that's certainly how i feel yeah 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 oh, i i think it's hard to frame a response which Real, which is really honest about the emotional underpinnings of it, right? So if you if you ask me what I think is sensible, I'm, I'm all like kind of, oh, masks are sensible and not planning this is sensible and, you know, don't don't book a foreign trip till you're absolutely sure that would be sensible. But really in my heart, I do not want to even, I don't want to think ahead like that and I don't want to accept a new normal and I don't want, so so you've always got these kind of two impulses pulling uh, pulling away from each other, how you actually feel and what you feel you should think. Zoe, some Tory MPs have fallen into line after Sajid Javid said they should set an example by wearing masks in the Commons chamber. But there have also been claims by the Conservatives that the focus on mask wearing is creating divisions in British society. So, you know, it's all the left's fault. Can we unpack what's going on here? Well, I think basically there's a lot of backbench Tories who can only make a name for themselves taking a strong stance on a kind of cultural war style issue. But they don't really, masks, if you think about it, are quite a safe cultural, culture war because you won't, if you, if you start pontificating about vaccination and whether or not it should be compelled, you're skating dangerously close to presenting a kind of public health threat. And, you know, you, that's the kind of thing that can get you kicked off social media. Um, whereas you can say, it's my right as a, as a, as an Englishman not to wear a mask. And you're kind of, you're identifying yourself as a certain kind of conservative. You're getting a lot of attention and it doesn't actually cost you very much. You know, there's no kind of logical endpoint to that where you've accidentally backed your, identified as a kind of racist or a xenophobe or anything else. So I think it's just, it's, I think it's got an instrumental place in the Tory party. I don't think they really care one way or the other. I mean, who could really get that exercised about whether they had something on their face or didn't have something on their face? I think much more likely they're, just trying to get currency out of it. Marie, there have been a lot of warnings over the weekend from doctors that A&E and maternity services are under more strain than ever before. Does that cut through to the public now? Because the NHS is a, you know, it's a secular religion in this country. It's why fundamentally we have to go into lockdown. Is, is, Is that reaching the public or are we just turning away? I'm not sure it is. And I think, so I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure it is. And I'm not sure that's new either. Because I do remember, so quite early on, you know, the, the, the first stage of the pandemic until, you know, March last year. But even I think this time last year as well, kind of over the summer and stuff, like there was constant, I know this is very sort of like um, typical of me to be like, you know, on Twitter, I read some interesting things. But, you know, that there were generally really interesting discussions of sort of like NHS doctors and nurses and stuff saying, I don't think, you know, we do not believe the public realises how bad it is in our hospitals. And then kind of journalists saying, well, actually, you know, the problem is that it's quite hard to report on because hospital, it's quite hard to film in hospitals, especially because I think people do tend to watch TV news and that's kind of more hard hitting. And, and you know, there was so, so there was that slight disconnect. And I think that, again, it's not a new problem at all. But But it's also, I think, to an extent, I wonder if I were to be slightly cynical as well, that's something that doesn't happen like every winter as well. I, it, it does feel that, you know, I've been living in this country for 12 years now. And it does feel kind of like October, November, December 
you'll always see stories in the papers about hospitals being completely overwhelmed, normally with the flu, but now obviously you've got, you know, a, a spicy new um, thing on top of it. So, so yeah, no, again, I'm not, I'm not sure the public is either that worried or that aware really that the situation in quite a few hospitals um, across Britain is dire. Here, there's also pressures on GPs, of course. The head of the BMA, Dr. Chant Nagpal, he said that Javid's plans for a more in-person GP appointments will open them up to more abuse because people will blame GPs for not giving them appointments. Is he right? Is this a very hot button issue, do you think? Well, I mean, this is a this is a dangerous question for me to answer because I will uh, inevitably be extraordinarily biased, given that uh, I grew up in Wembley and uh, Dr. Chandanagpal is a GP in Stanmore. And so I worry that if I were to disagree with him publicly, then it would, uh, via the community, my parents would somehow tell him uh, and <laughs> it would uh, lead to sort of problems with my grandmother or what have you. So let's just say, I, I don't know, uh, I don't know how GP surgeries work, but if uh, uh, Indian man from Northwest London who looks like my uncle tells me to think something, then I, I will think it. I mean, sure, I think this is just another kind of out-group, in-group, completely confected row, isn't it? I mean, there isn't a problem with GP appointments. GPs have managed extremely well, get kind of prioritising the face-to-face for the cases which you can't do over remotely, and then kind of innovating quite spectacularly, I think, with remote um, doctor's appointments and it's been, it's been really efficient and really um, solid and if there's a problem at all with GPs it's it's that they're working too hard and they're very demoralized so I kind of feel like it's just absolutely bizarre that the, the, the government can start these completely wild kind of um, rumors about an entire body of medics you know that they're too lazy to do gp appointments and and then and you know and then when you ask them to do face-to-face then they're too worried about their own skins and then we all spend ages discussing it it seems to be self-evidently untrue okay well in this case i will choose to agree with zoe <laughs> on this issue uh, because I am so heavily compromised on this subject that my GP is literally someone who I've known since I was four and he was eight. Uh, <laughs> because he lived next door to my grandmother. <laughs> Facebook and Instagram are in trouble. Whistleblower Francis Haugen leaked tens of thousands of internal documents that showed they were failing to protect their users from harmful content. Marie, what did we learn from the congressional hearing about the way Facebook and Instagram operate? Well, I think in a way where we didn't actually sort of learn much, I think it was really interesting and really shocking because it just confirmed everything we knew but Facebook had been denying for a very long time. So we now know that Facebook was effectively aware of, you know, of exactly, yeah, like as you're saying, can we know how harmful uh, its platforms have been over the past few years and, and not just I think that's been quite interesting so obviously in the west but even I would say more so in non-western countries then I mean and then there's some interesting tidbits I picked up on I think there was one thing where uh, Francis was saying that apparently quite a lot of Facebook is quite understaffed so quite often they would be able to identify some problems so what was it like the counter spying I think team or something she was a part of and she was kind of explaining saying you know we knew there was a problem but we didn't have the resources and basically we could only act on about 20 or 30 percent of what we should have been doing and she did say that that kind of kept happening which um yeah like that one I have to say I did not really realize was a problem but yeah no I think most of all it was just quite yeah again shocking watching especially kind of like tech reporters 
saying, you know, this is gobsmacking because it turns out that every phone call, every meeting I've had with anyone at Facebook over the past decade, they just sort of lied through their teeth effectively and said, oh, you know, how dreadful we didn't know about this. Thanks for letting us know when they knew. And then the last thing as well, I think, was uh, her arguing that actually the company was too big. I mean, the whole, you know, move fast and break things ethos doesn't really, hasn't worked for a very long time at Facebook because Facebook is too big a company. And I think that is, I mean, it's not, I think, unique in that, but that's certainly a problem um, in the tech world. You know, I've I've worked in new media before and I've definitely seen it happen on a smaller scale with these companies starting as, you know, startups full of like new bright and young sort of, you know, like 20 somethings working together. And then they sort of like grow and grow and grow and never really develop ways to function as a big company. And as a result, I think Facebook, the, the sense I got was that effectively they knew a lot about the problems, um, but Facebook had become so big that, you know, the problems just could not really get solved. In some ways, it feels like the you know, stable door was opened and the horse bolted a long time ago because young people have largely abandoned Facebook and even Instagram for WhatsApp and TikTok, whatever other media platforms I do not even know yet. Why does it take so long for us to identify the problems with these with these different social media platforms? I think that's a. I wonder if the more interesting question is not a slightly different one of like how do platforms evolve with time? Because I think, you know, I've not really used Facebook for years and years now. And back when I did use it, it was largely just, you know, it was a very social app. So it was for organizing events and kind of keeping track of, you know, who was going to what party, etc. Looking at pictures of your friends, messaging, etc. And that was broadly it. And I think that's why I think quite a lot of us kind of, you know, millennials and Gen Z, etc., were quite taken aback by the amount of insanity on, you know, the pro-Trump, anti-vax, et cetera, Facebook groups, because these are not sites we've really been on for years. So I wonder if it's not a case of platforms actually changing with time and evolving and the problem is only coming after a while. I mean, I, I, I'm just doing this from, this from the perspective of living with a bunch of 12 and 14-year-olds. Um, and what I've, a couple of things I've noticed. One of them is it's just unbelievable how fast they've all watched the same thing and all seen the whole the same thing. You know, they things kind of take hold, like a kind of TikTok video where somebody talks incredibly fast about the Chinese minimum wage, or um, something on YouTube where somebody talks incredibly fast about why capitalism is bad, or capitalism is good, or capitalism is the only thing. And then they've all seen it. It's not. It's not like. You're, one of your kids has seen it and the and your nieces haven't. Everybody's seen it. So I think there's a thing about um, the, the, the kind of network, the capillary action of content is unbelievably fast. And I think that has a kind of, what what can happen as a result of that is that whole, a whole cohort of people will suddenly have a new view um, towards a certain kind of politics or a certain kind of idea that you just totally weren't expecting and you don't know where it's come from. And then you'll find out ages later that it came from a 15 second TikTok video, <laughs> which didn't make sense. And then you have to go right back to the beginning and say, yeah, you realize that that bit actually wasn't, that that bit was a joke or that bit was made up or, you know, so there's a, there's a kind of process there, which I don't think you can pin on Zuckerberg or anybody like him where um, this is, it is just the nature of, of, commute of that kind of communication there's but there is also that thing of what i think is most dangerous about facebook and i think you know this is quite a common critique is the way that it can you know i don't think we did think about how personality types gravitating towards certain kinds of politics could be manipulated so you know certain kinds of introverted certain kinds of introversion lead like young men into incel territory really really fast and then the the kind of content sharing and content gathering 
happens the way I just described with a kind of TikTok video, except it happens with much more nefarious ideologies. And I, and, and, you know, in a way, for all that, it's fine to kind of hold Zuckerberg to account. And I noticed that he's, you know, he's got the first actual named complaint against him by the US, from a US regulator this week. So he might well be held to account in, in quite a serious way for him. That's all fine, but we need to just think harder about, about the ways in which this, these forms can be manipulated to political effect, because just, choosing villains in the world of social media and then you know giving them a good kicking in front of congressional committees is not going to cut it but here is facebook salvageable i mean does it as mark zuckerberg has argued repeatedly does it do any good for society i mean i i suppose it sort of there are certain people who believe that fermenting race wars is good uh so i suppose from from their perspectives perhaps it does some good for society or uh people who have uh i, I think it does good for society if you have very differing conceptions of the good uh to mine um but no i i don't think so it's just that it's it's slightly shocking that you never hear like anything positive about it. Like normally, even when friends like have office jobs that they don't like, they're like, "Oh well, sort of like on a Friday there's pastries. That's quite good." Uh, whereas with everyone at Facebook, it's just like, "And the pastries were filled with cyanide." And you know these guys can't do anything. Uh, nice, I, I suppose yes. The, so it doesn't seem salvageable. It's uh, introduced the rest of the world to Nick Clegg. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that the, we'd, we'd be better off selling it for scrap. Marie, Donald Trump is launching a new platform called Truth Social. How do you rate that platform's chances? I, you know, I, I'm actually quite confident in saying that it's not because didn't he like, didn't he have a blog basically as well a few months ago? Then you know he, he stopped quietly after like three weeks, which is actually very relatable. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but, but but you know, it's just actually I was kind of thinking about this and. There's been so many platforms, you know, I kind of feel like an online elder at this stage. And I have seen people go off to so many platforms, but be that, you know, for good or bad reasons. So either, yeah, the kind of fascist being that, oh, well, you know, we're going to create our own website, like Milo Yiannopoulos and the rest. Or, you know, all cool fun people being actually, you know, we want to go to like that new platform, which only have like us cool fun people on it. And they always fail. They just always, always fail. Like, I cannot remember i think if you slightly put tiktok aside to think it's not quite the same thing but apart from that when was the last time really that a social media network properly sort of you know got launched and then succeeded so you know i just could not be any less worried about it do you remember um louise mench's mention yes that was the oh my god i was trying to remember the name (laughs) genuinely that is exactly the one i was thinking about and i could not remember the name i'm just so thrilled (laughs) at the the idea of these right wingers who think that the world is that there's this kind of huge silent majority who's just thirsting after their agenda and then it turns out that the the people who support them weren't silent at all they were actually a really really noisy minority no but it's also i think without being like a bit internet nerdy as well i think there's something interesting in those groups these groups can only function, I think, as in-groups, as long as they're on platforms without groups as well. Um, yeah, so it's yeah. not a case of, you know, they like each other and they get along. They're brought in together because they like fighting. You know, the liberals, they're like trolling. They're like doing all of that. They like riding themselves up to then, you know, have all these fights. So I think the second they all end up together, their entire purpose of being online and the thing that actually got them all together in the first place no longer exists, is no longer relevant. So I think that is why that's like, you know, specifically very politicised people leaving a big platform never, ever works because they're there for the fights. They're there, you know, because of their enemies. I think that's very perceptive. And it's just extraordinary to me that they, they didn't think of that. 
I mean, they just have, must have such low self-awareness. <laughs> so basically, it's more dangerous to have Trump roaming free on a massive platform where we can see him rather than Trump confined to a members only platform where we can't. Because some people would argue that the latter was kind of scarier. I know, 100%. And it's also, and obviously, you know, I think Donald Trump is slightly different because he somehow literally used to be the um, president of the United States. But again, people who got banned, you know, I, I think it's a slightly adjacent debate, but people who got quote unquote deplatformed, so people like Katie Hopkins, Milo Yiannopoulos, et cetera, there were at the time always discourse, you know, there was discourse saying, oh, well, actually, you know, it'll be even more, you know, it'll get them radicalized, they leave the mainstream platforms, et cetera, et cetera. And you know what? Instead, what happened is that I have no idea, like not the faintest clue, what either of them is up to now. I think the last I heard, Mylenopoulos got COVID, um, and that's literally it. So I think that <laughs> they're again, just up to, they're probably just doing things that are really normal, just like really normal stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm having a totally normal one. Yeah. <laughs> so, hey, what's your take on Instagram? Because there was, you know, the leak suggested that Instagram, uh, Facebook, which owns it, of course, knew that it was having a harmful impact on girls' self-esteem in particular. I mean, I, I would be personally glad to see the back of it. I think it's done less harm to democracy than Facebook has. But to me, it's done very little for feminism, for example, apart from the kind that enjoys empowering memes and self actualization of some kind what's what's your take on instagram i mean there's there is something interesting going on i was doing a, some research on labia liberation recently i mean honestly i'm 48 years old i've never even used the word labia in in a feature until this year and i've now written two features about it <laughs> i mean it's definitely a thing young women talk about their bodies in a completely different way and a lot of that is driven by kind of Instagram activists, um, kind of a little bit of TikTok, a little bit of Instagram. There is, I'm not, the, the, you know, there is dicey content. There's loads of, um, there's loads of kind of eating disorder content, which is genuinely dangerous. There's loads of just kind of body perfection and, and you know, body ideals that are completely unattainable and distressing. And there's a load of bullying as well. Um, but there is also, it is also a site of, a lot of political activism and a lot of political awakening and a lot of political solidarity. So I don't think it's, it's just not as simple as these the, these um, platforms are creating de- a dangerous space for um, young women or any kind of women or young men for that matter. I think what I would like to see is just a lot more um, kind of evolution and sense around what content is deemed unacceptable and what content is acceptable. Because at the moment, you know, it's, it's, it's thought of as pornographic to put a picture of yourself on Facebook breastfeeding, whereas it's not considered problematic to put kind of open statements of race, hate and fascism on Twitter, say. Um, and it just, it just needs to be like, A, a more coherent and B, a more progressive and C, more collegiate and and democratic way of talking about and conceiving what we find acceptable and what we don't. We were promised a festival of Brexit, and now that we've left, we can finally have one. It's been a tough few decades while the British yearning for festivals has been limited to, say, Glastonbury. Ten projects have been chosen for what is going to be called the Once in a Lifetime Festival of UK Creativity. Ahir, what do we know about these uh, exciting events? So, uh, 
Ross, there's no real way around it. A lot of them are really weird. But I think that it, it could be quite exciting. I want this, So this was a, a thing that was commissioned under Theresa May's premiership back in uh, 2018. And, you know, like, yes, it's called the Festival of Brexit and some of it uh, seems like, you know, will, will it work, won't it work? But I really hope it does work uh, because it's pumping, you know, £120 million government-backed into things across the nations of the UK uh, and into the arts and stuff. And, yeah, you know, more, more power to the elbow of the people involved. Like, what, one of them that uh, I'm quite looking for, there's one that's, like, on a decommissioned offshore platform near Western Supermare. I'm like, oh, I'd go to that. Why not? Like, when, when else am I ever going to get a chance to go on a decommissioned offshore platform? Yeah? Sounds fun. Why not? Like, yes, I, 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 support, I support everyone in this uh, endeavour, even though, let's be honest, it will quite likely be absolutely barking. Well, if a decommissioned offshore platform is like less than £2,000 a week in August, I mean, I'd, I'd go there, I suppose. <laughs> Sorry, will you be going along to any of these? I mean, I think, no, of course not. I don't even go, I don't even make it along to cultural events I'm interested in. But um, <laughs> they, um, what I think, I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite glad of it because they rely, it's a bit like the right wing of the Labour Party. They, they, their entire conception of their entire cultural identity is their war on woke, you know, their kind of war of the against the kind of uh, culture that they don't like. But then when you actually say to them, well, what's your, what's your kind of culture? What kind of culture do you like? Or what kind of ideas or policies do you like? There's this kind of gaping void. And they're, you know, they can't indulge their worst excesses because they would, you know, the kind of right-wing culture, like right-wing comedy is just frank, flat-out weird. They've got nothing and they end up with this quite kind of milky, boring, weird stuff. And I quite like that, the kind of unmasking of that. And if you're interested in comedy that isn't flat-out weird, I'm your show address <laughs> will be opening at the Soho Theatre on the 1st of November and running till the 13th, then on tour nationally. <laughs> Tickets available. Thank you, here for that public service <laughs> Marie, which one takes your fancy? Um, so I was kind of reading them, and, yeah, I mean, A, I would agree that they're actually unexpectedly weird, which I, you know, which I quite welcome, actually. I mean, so the one that caught my eye is actually called Dream Machine, and it's apparently, I quote, an immersive environment of light and sound creating vibrant imagery, imagery and kaleidoscopic patterns behind closed eyes. And obviously, so I would never admit to have taken illegal drugs at university uh, when I was younger. But let's say I did, you know, for the sake of the experiment. And let's say that I now feel like I'm too old to take drugs because I'm quite boring. And let's say, you know, I read that and I thought, oh, this kind of sounds like perhaps something like one would feel if one were to do drugs in a more gentle way. And one could be reminded of one's university days. Um, so, yeah, so that's, um, that's you know, hypothetically uh, the one that caught my eye. Yeah, that like if the festival of Brexit wanted to achieve one thing, it's giving the French woman an experience of being on acid again. And that's, uh... <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think the, uh, the idea behind the Brexit festival was to, you know, relive safely your illegal drug experiences. But hey, if that's what it's doing. The event is going to be called Unboxed Creativity in the UK, with the CEO saying that he wants the festival to be open, original and optimistic. Marie, is this event going to be Brexity enough? Oh, no, which is delightful. Like, I, I just love the idea that this was busy commissioned and, you know, and all the Brexit nutters were like, yes, yes, this is excellent. And then, and to be fair, then I think there was quite a lot of mooning as well. 
from the kind of, you know, Remainery people. Um, and yeah, and I sort of love the fact that then everyone forgot about it entirely, partially, in fairness, due to the global pandemic. And, and then it popped back up and it's like, oh, yeah, it's just this weird thing now. Like, it's, it's not political in any way. And it's not really talking about, you know, uh, nationalism or patriotism or whatever. It's just 10 quite weird events. And that's that. Like, I think there's something deeply comical about this. Uh, the MP Craig McKinley, who is one of the 28 Spartans who voted against Theresa May's deal three times, said the event was now meaningless. Whitehall sanitised down. Zoe, is he right? Is it all to Carrie Johnson and not enough Rees Mogg? Well, I mean, it, it's it, nothing. I think the one thing we learned, well, we, we learned a number of things over the course of Brexit, none of which I actually wanted to know. But one of the things we learned is that nothing is ever enough. For the real swivel-eyed Brexiter, nothing will ever be enough. The cultural um, marking of it won't be enough. The deals with Europe won't be enough. Nothing will be enough until... And until the whole world bows down to the UK and says, you are, you are the greatest and you rule the waves. Now, now you know, they, what they want can never, can never happen. And what's peculiar about it is just how much political currency they get out of just complaining about everything. It's like, I can't think of an analogy or a, or a similar thing that's happened in modern politics. So, um, so yeah, I mean, of course, there are going to be some Brexiters who are disappointed, but they should get used to it because they're going to be disappointed by quite a lot. Let's talk about what an actual festival of Brexit would look like, as opposed to something that, would, you know, we're, we're actually okay with. What do you reckon it would look like, Marie? Oh, I think in the end, there would not be a festival. So everyone would talk about this great festival of Brexit happening. Then it would turn out that every single person who was organising it and bought a ticket for it had a different idea of what they wanted from that <laughs> festival of Brexit. And so in the end, it would just be some sort of empty field with everyone just being a bit annoyed. Do you think it would be like the fire festival? It would be like everybody spent 50 grand on a ticket and then they just turned up to these or to this kind of appalling... <laughs> hey, I think that uh, I think that we're doing the fire festival down here. Like that, uh, Brexit has gone very badly. Whereas Jar Rule meant to create that gulag. <laughs> I think it would just be, you know, you turn up and then they would say, "Well, what did you want it to be?" And then you could just say what you wanted it to be, and that would be Brexit. Because let's face it, it's whatever the people because Brexit it means Brexit. It yeah. Brexit means Brexit, and there would just be this big sign called Brexit. And maybe you could do something, you know, like they do on really rubbish museum exhibitions, where you where you have to write what you think the the, the exhibition is about in little writing on the uh, on, on the word. I, I I think that would work quite well. I hear you you're reasonably positive about this, and you're what the government likes to call a creative. Mm. I mean, overall, <laughs> obviously there could be a bit more comedy going on, I imagine, for you. But is it is it generally good news for freelancers and the creative sector? Well, I, I do think that uh, in this country, like the creative sector is one of the few things that we're genuinely world leading in, uh, you know, and we're, now that we've got to a situation where our last remaining exports in this country are arms and period dramas, I think that we need to be a little more uh, aware of the importance of the creative arts. And, you know, it, it's, it's at least uh, nice to have uh, this government in particular being aware of the creative sector in a way that goes beyond uh, Nadine Dorries calling for the head of anyone to the left of, I don't know, David Cameron. No, David Cameron is actually too left-wing for her. She hated him. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, so I just remembered that and I was like, oh, I've just made myself quite sad now. Anyway, continue. <laughs> Some horrible information floated into your brain about Nadine Dorries and now your evening is ruined. <laughs> 
And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's now time for escape routes. What are the films, TV shows, music, books, and miscellaneous activities that have taken our panelists' minds away from the bruising world of politics? Marie, what have you been watching and admiring this week? Um, so I've actually said so two things. The first one is uh, there's a wonderful BBC documentary from 2004 called Francesco's Venice. Well, they basically, which I, I sort of love because they commission this Jenny quite random Venetian aristocrat who never really presented anything on TV to do this four part documentary on his city. And it is just the single most charming thing I've ever watched. And then uh, the video game Ori and the Will of the Wisps, which is incredibly fun, but just incredibly hard. And just very annoying because it looks really pretty and kind of like a video game for children. But it's actually, yeah, just unbelievably hard. So it feels quite humiliating to just die again and again and again when you're sort of like, you know, cutie little character. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so there you go. <laughs> uh, here, what have you been up to? Uh, I will be watching the T20 Cricket World Cup and hoping <laughs> that the what happened to India... Uh, on uh, over the weekend is just simply a one-off and we will never again be subjected to the heaviest defeat that we have ever had in that form of cricket by Pakistan. Excellent. How about you, Zoe? Well, I went to see um, The French Dispatch, the new Wes Anderson, which everybody's been really slagging off and the reviews have been shocking. And I absolutely loved it. And it, and, I, and it just made me think, because he said it was a love letter to journalists. But that's like, no wonder the reviews have been so bad. You can't write journalists a love letter. They just go, screw you, we write the letters. Um, <laughs> it's really charming. It's just unbelievably charming. I loved it. Um, I'm also reading Paul Mason's book, How to Stop Fascism, which is like a thriller. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. You know, you think it's going to be like quite hard going you know, you should have joined your local this party. And it's not like that at all. It's genuinely nail biting. Um, it, it makes it sound like I'm super cultural. <laughs> I'm going to stop there. Otherwise, I just carry on forever. Well, I've been quite basic recently because actually it may sound strange, but I never actually watched any Downton Abbey until now. I realise this is a decade late, but I have finally been watching Downton Abbey because it's on Netflix and I thought I should. And I looked at it and thought, should I watch Squid Game or should I watch Downton Abbey? And I thought, Squid Game's for later. When I have that brain space, Downton Abbey's for now. So that is just pathetic. But I've also been watching um, Bake Off and really quite enjoying how well the, the the Italian and German contestants have been doing. Has anyone else been watching Bake Off or is it just me? <laughs> I love no, how British me, your tastes are. I tell you what I uh, have seen, which is not, but it's a new show called Baking Impossible, uh, which is a combination <laughs> of Bake Off and having to do ridiculous engineering challenges. It is the <laughs> stupidest thing I have ever seen in my life. And I regard any moment that I'm not watching it a moment wasted. Excellent. Oh, I did actually finish a novel, so that was very good. I read a novel called Bewilderment, which is on the Booker shortlist, and uh, it was extremely sobering, but very, very good. So I do recommend that. It's about an autistic nine-year-old boy, and it's, it's, it's really quite tragic. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to Marie Leconte. Oh, thanks for having me. I hear Charles. Thank you. And to our special guest, Zoe Williams. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week and the new Culture Bunker on Saturdays, which I hear fantastic things about and listen to it as soon as I get the chance. Remember, if you liked this podcast, send it to three friends to spread the word. There's a share button right here in your app. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon for early episodes, merchandise and all kinds of extras. 
Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You will earn our gratitude and a shout out at the end of the podcast. To wit, here are this week's. Very many thanks and best wishes to Michael Cordingly, Peshki and John Power. Many thanks and very best from me to Noel McHale, Niall Murphy and Justin Bartley. And finally, hello and a big thank you from me to Eddie Von Berg, Jerry Blunt and Richard Botel. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Ros Taylor with Ahir Shah and Marie LeConte. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.